Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the 10th of February, 2022. I want to uh, get right into the lecture. Hopefully we can talk about interferons and the relationship to lipids and various aspects of pathophysiology as associated with the inflammatory response. <clears throat> we talked last time about um, interferon receptors that are of the heterodimeric form as an alpha-beta form. Remember the short term for an interferon receptor is an IFNAR. I told you about when we run through the JAK-STAT signaling pathway after inter interferon binding to its receptor and that the genes that are then stimulated via um, essentially chromatin remodeling, retailoring, and then fresh uh, alteration in chromatin rearrangement. Sometimes epigenetic signatures are added because interferon uh, and in general, immune responses can add, that is, they can write in epigenetic signatures that are then read and then erased. This is not uncommon when you get an inflammatory stimulation. And that, of course, means you're going to have a unique suite of genes produced. And really important with um, any immune transcription factors is that... <laughs> It really depends on the cellular environment as to what kinds, there's the valence of the genes that are expressed. Are they pro or anti-inflammatory? And at what level, okay? So there could be a geometrical progression of steady increases in the expression of, say, for example, pro-inflammatory cytokine repertoire, which will then start to reduce as that tissue modifies its gene expression and because of the surrounding environment communicating with that cellular lineage. And when that happens, the same cells that were producing pro-inflammatory cytokines, like IL-1-beta and 6 and 18, can start then reprogramming because of epigenetic alterations and start making anti-inflammatory cytokines, like IL-10, which will slow down the inflammatory process. So that's, this is again, an extremely dynamic situation. So indeed, type 1 interferon response in CNS, which is where we are now, <clears throat> can arise from multiple um, lesions. You do get infections in the CNS. More typically, they're bacterial. They're not parasitic and they're not viral in nature, although this can happen much more rarely. But you also get a lot of TBIs, traumatic brain injuries. There's also neurodegeneration. So that means in situ signaling, inducing inflammation, and then uh, ultimately turning on the entire uh, repertoire of immune system, which can also lead to diapodesis of uh, T, and T cell lineages into the CNS. You remember before that I told you that in the subarachnoid space, there are T cells that are always resident there, but they're usually quiescent, but they can be activated and when that happens in the CNS, you get a regular acquired immune response with T helper type of stimulation, some natural killer cells. This is when you get a, a, an acute brain injury or one that's chronic. And the chronic would be more like neurodegeneration, which can be linked to things like aging or to pre-existing chronic diseases like those associated with obesity and type 2 diabetes. That can lead to a CNS chronic inflammatory response. So <clears throat> type 1 interferons can be protective or deleterious 
And so when you look at something like multiple sclerosis, which is an autoimmune disease, here's where you have a T1 interferon and they're thought to probably exert and perform as anti-inflammatory responsive systems. And that's because of the production of anti-inflammatory cytokine IL-10, which will simultaneously suppress the pro-inflammatory cytokine IL-1 beta. And that's why interferon beta is actually still a first-line therapy for uh, MS because it limits the infiltration of the lymphocytes I just mentioned into the brain itself and decreases relapse rate in spite of the evidence that overexpression of interferon alpha in the brains of model animals like mice associates directly with neuroinflammation and neurodegeneration. So you see, so the mouse models that we often look at are just as precociously subjective as they relate to the human system as our metabolic diseases of the liver, the kidney, the lung, and the heart, for, or skeletal muscle, for, or the adipose. You always have to be sure to put a huge caveat in when you're looking at any kind of pathophysiology that has been extensively studied in the mouse model. And again, most of these studies where you really get down to good biochemistry and good molecular genetics and epigenetics is going to be with the murine model, with the mouse model, because we do knockouts, right? Rats are not set up yet really to do knockouts. It's kind of most, it's kind of because their genetics isn't nearly as refined as the uh, mice that we use in research. Uh, that's one reason. The other reason has to do with um, ah, it, it just it's difficult to raise or have a rat colony in a laboratory setting in a university or even in the industry. Mouse colonies are easier to keep up. Uh, life cycle of rats is different than mice. There's a lot of things that uh, come into play. So mouse, when you talk about rodent models, it's almost always a mouse, for, especially for CNS work. But I would have to argue mostly for um, any of the metabolic disorders. And so just what I said before, if you, if you follow the mouse literature, you wouldn't know that interferon beta acts differently than interferon alpha because that kind of interaction is not so common in the murine model. Whereas in humans, it's very common. So understand the nuance here. You have a system that can turn on an inflammatory response and completely cause alteration of gene expression, which includes epigenetic modification of chromatin so that you alter the expression of specific genes. And then after that, um, what happens is you get a repeal of that inflammatory response directly from the same initial signaling, but is now changed valency. Okay. So that's very important to understand. Now, type one interferonopathies are linked to constitutive production of type one interferons. Let's see constitutive. That's the issue here. And you get an increase, of course, in the expression of interferon-stimulated genes, ISGs. So the type 1 interferonopathies result typically from regular nucleotide mutations. For example, there's one called the Icardae-Guterres syndrome. 
and that involves the activation of microglia in the CNS and then a subsequent chronic neuroinflammation. Other neuro, directly related to interferonopathy. Other neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease and MS, things like ataxia, telangiectasia, they are essentially all at one level or other type one interferonopathies. That's right, you heard me correctly. So neuroinflammation involves the activation of the inflammasome, which we brought up last time. But remember that I'm reminding you, I should say, that it is a cytosolic protein complex. And it's going to have multiple copies of various proteins, which have to be in the right stoichiometric ratio for them to form this inflammasome system. So you have proteins like um, there's a danger sensing receptor called AIM2, and then there's a procaspase 1, and then there's this adapter protein, which has got a nice long name, apoptotic spec containing protein that's known as the ASC. Those are some of the proteins you need. You also, of course, need that NLRP3, which is coordinating the inflammasome construction within the cell. So the activation of the inflammasome in the glial and neuronal cells results in a caspase one activation, and you can get pyrotonic cell death from that, pyrotonic, which of course is very dangerous because it's going to induce a resident hyperimmune, hyperinflammatory response until it's recovered. You also get the release of very potent pro-inflammatory cytokines, IL-1 beta and IL-18. IL so both of those can really lead to um, a very severe uh, neuroinflammatory response, which can, of course, because it's in the CNS, lead to very high levels of morbidity, loss of a lot of motor functions, et cetera. And on top of that um, can lead to permanent damage. So these are not small issues, right? So inflammatory conditions like in obesity, you have two distinct macrophage subpopulations, and they are found in various affected organs. They're associated with, of course, different functions. And now we're talking about macrophages and organ tissues. So you have the M1 macrophage, which displays an extreme pro-inflammatory response. They typically express high levels, of course, of pro-inflammatory receptors, like toll-like receptors. You also have tumor necrosis factor receptors and interleukin-1 receptors. And all three of those exhibit a powerful activation of a transcription factor known as NF-kappa-B, which we talked about many times in the past. And then that's what, what's going to happen with after chromatin retailering in those cells is a massive induction of expression of pro-inflammatory cytokines and trafficking chemokines, as well as extracellular matrix um, proteases, metalloproteases, which can lead then to further tissue damage. Now, conversely, the M2 macrophages, of course, are anti-inflammatory. and They're characterized by a higher expression of interleukin-4 receptor, whose activation down-regulates inflammatory mediators like TNF, alpha, and IL-6. They also display an activation of transcription factors like PPAR-gamma and PPAR-delta, 
which will lead to higher expression of anti-inflammatory cytokines, such as IL-10. Now, PPR-gamma, PPAR-delta will also reroute the bioenergetic pathways, leading to higher levels of beta-oxidation of fatty acids and a decrease in net synthesis of lipids, which means the same time you're producing massive amounts of anti-inflammatory cytokines, you're redirecting the energy um, requirements of those cells. You're decreasing glucose utilization and you're increasing fatty acid oxidation. And because of that, you don't get that rapid response and energy necessary to produce a lot of cytokines. So the transition from pro-inflammatory to anti-inflammatory is much smoother, you see. You understand that? So the inflammation level present in tissues is therefore, I'd say, dependent on the balance between the M1 and the M2 macrophages, M2 being the quiescent, and also the ones that work to clean up cellular debris after pyrotosis. And the balance is modulated all the way up at the level of diet because that controls hormonal status, both neuroendocrine and pancreatic endocrine hormones and all other possible hormonal regulation, like from the adipose, the stomach, and the gut. Right. And uh, what else do I want to say? The number of potential inflammatory triggers has been identified in this system. When, it, when you have TLR4 and it's activated, you're going to get chronic inflammation. And TLR4 is activated, if you don't remember this, I'm going to tell you again, by high concentration of circulating long-chain fatty acids, particularly ones that are either saturated or mono-unsaturated. And this is from an obesogenic state. So consequently, the I-kappa-kappa, one-kappa-B signaling cascade is turned on because of TLR4, remember, and that will lead again to to the production of NF-kappa-B. That protein will become translocated to the nucleus, and there it's going to activate via chromatin retailering a transcription of all the pro-inflammatory cytokines and and also... Uh, the potential for producing um, chemokines as well. So high circulating levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines like TNF-alpha, MCP1, um, TGF-beta, interferon gamma, as well as those very potent uh, unilocular um, cytokines like interleukin uh, IL-6, IL-1-beta, IL-18, IL-8. All of those are observed in patients that present with a chronic inflammatory state, such as the obesogenic. So TLR4 activation is is signal here, and it's linked to an increased expression of several proteins involved in the formation of those inflammasomes I just mentioned. So remember, you're getting a multi-protein complex formed, and that is what's responsible once it sets up its activities, its mechanisms for a long-term pro-inflammatory status. Now, in particular, the NLRP3, remember that's the nod-like receptor family, pyrene domain-containing three, is an inflammasome complex involved in several inflammatory diseases associated with chronic and even just low-grade inflammation. So the NLRP3 is considered an intracellular receptor it's responsible for the activation of inflammatory responses. Several factors can activate NLRP3, 
including elevated concentration of intercellular ATP, reactive oxygen species, mitochondrial oxidized DNA also can play a role here, and indeed anything that destabilizes lysosomal activity. The NLRP3 can also be activated by low intracellular potassium or high calcium influx, which will arise in response to any kind of cellular stress because those voltage-gated channels that are controlling cationic flux in and out of the cell, particularly potassium and calcium, will then trigger this response, right? So multiple things going on with the plasma membrane. I want to make sure you were reminded of that because I do bring it up regularly, but sometimes I don't at every episode. All right, so what else I want to say? NLRP3 is considered the key factor responsible for the induction of what can be called progressive chronic inflammation. In fact, when you disrupt the NLRP3 inflammasome in adipose tissue, you will decrease directly the concentration of pro-inflammatory cytokines. And it will restore such things as insulin sensitivity in the adipose. Now, this is, again, the mouse model. Now, another mechanism involved in the development of uh, chronic inflammation involves excessive storage of triacylglycerol lipids, which we covered last time. This can occur within adipose tissue or in various peripheral domains, the liver, the kidney, the skeletal muscle, the cardiac muscle, etc. Remember that. How do, you, how do you get to the state? Sedentary lifestyle and poor eating habits. They're going to aggravate an unbalanced triacylglycerol storage. In the mouse model, excessive tag storage in, for example, white adipose tissue, WAT, will induce the secretion directly of pro-inflammatory adipokines. And some of these adipokines then will trigger old-fashioned canonical pro-inflammatory cytokines like IL-1-beta, TNF-alpha, MCP-1, IL-6. And then that will trigger a systemic metabolic inflammatory response. Now, in addition to this, excessive triacylglycerol storage feeds lipolysis, which we talked about last time, and that will increase the amount of intracellular and circulating free fatty acids. Those are the fatty acids that act as stress-inducing molecules when they're captured by the TLR4 receptors, which, remember, are endogenous receptors. They can induce the activation of NF-kappa B and in turn induce the NLRP3 expression in macrophages. In addition to that, intracellular free fatty acids can impair mitochondria, lysosomal integrity, endoplasmic integrity, peroxisomal integrity. All of that will lead to the leakiness of electron transport and therefore generating reactive oxygen species. Free fatty acids will also inactivate serine-threonine kinase uh, type AMP kinase. And remember, that's a very positive influence on reducing inflammation. So free fatty acids will inactivate that serine-threonine kinase, the AMP, that, which is an AMP kinase here. And that's an intracellular energy sensor as well, as you know, because it has to be activated by AMP, right? Now, in that situation, secretion of interleukin-1-beta, which reminding you, is via the activation of the NLRP3 inflammasome, is in, it becomes increased, and that will lead then to insulin resistance, okay, as well as altering the activity of AMP kinase, which is going to lead to um, 
lack of control over autophagy, and then because of that, the removal of suppression of potential pyrotonic events, uh, which can lead to more inflammation. So it's been suggested that the activation of AMP kinase then itself might be a useful pharmaceutical target to cause anti-inflammatory production uh, of a cellular system that is already going through chronic inflammasome expression. Okay, so you'll find this in the literature. Now, way back when we were talking about steroid-CoA desaturase, remember that was the enzyme that will produce oleic acid. That's 18 colon 1 delta 9 cis um, octadecadecinoic acid, right? 18 carbons, one double bond. So that particular enzyme, okay, we're back to talking about this. If you do a global knockout of steroid desaturase in a mouse model, what you get is you get protection from adiposity, you get a protection from insulin resistance, and you do not get a fatty liver, even though you're giving those mice high carbohydrate and or high fat diet. And even the high fat diet having very high levels of saturated fatty acid. So it appears that that desaturase plays a major role because when you knock it out, you lose a lot of those <laughs> pathophysiological phenotypes. Now those effects appear to be mediated, at least in part, by insulin synthesization and therefore, as you might guess, an increased glucose oxidation by skeletal muscle and heart. So as the stereochoid desaturase one expression is highly induced in liver in response to saturated fatty acid influx, right? And that, that comes actually more commonly from high carbohydrate diet than it does from high fat diet, because high carbohydrate diet, you're going to run all that glucose through glycolysis and thence into the TCA cycle. You're going to jam up the TCA cycle at the level of isocitrate dehydrogenase, and you're going to run all that carbon citrate through ATP citrate lias out into the cytoplasm, generating de novo lipogenesis, both fatty acid synthesis de novo and cholesterol genesis de novo. So it's believed that those fatty acids are the ones that are causing the problem with a high-carbohydrate diet. You understand? Okay. In fact, liver-specific stereochoidesaturase 1 deficiency protects against all of those metabolic consequences. However, the high-fat diet-induced adiposity, which can also lead to fatty liver, are not ameliorated by this knockout muscle. That makes sense because you're not doing de novo fatty acid synthesis, right? You're doing carbohydrate, you're doing de novo fatty acid synthesis, and that's going to be palmitate and steroid. And because you have this knockout of desaturation of either palmitate or steroid, you have high levels of saturated fatty acid, and then that's going to induce this whole phenomenon. You understand? Okay, and, and plus, you're not going to be able to run a lot of those fatty acids down to ketone bodies because you're going to have a flummox at the level of TCA cycle because of the increasing amount of flux of NADH and FADH2. You're going to get blockage in the electron transport chain and it's going to start increasing the, the uh, mass production of um, reactive oxygen species.
So stereochord desaturase is, has been described as overexpressed in multiple malignancies as well. That includes cancers of the lung and breast called rectum, esophagus, bladder, liver, brain. Okay. So stereochord desaturase therefore seems to be a really useful biomarker for the prognosis of many of those cancers. In fact, it's using is being used currently for bladder cancer. That's because stereochord desaturase overexpression is associated with progressive and metastatic cancer in that system, and the stereochord desaturase transcript level inversely correlates with survival rate. Now, this is human studies. However, the precise mechanism they're they're still working on of why would serocoid desaturase promote carcinogenesis? Um, I think a good hypothesis would be that because you're producing a lot of saturated fatty acids, you're not able to keep up with polyunsaturated fatty acid production, particularly of the very long chain puffers, including omega-6 and omega-3. So you're not able to maintain membrane integrity, both the plasma membrane and in all the endomembranous systems. This will lead to complete corruption of signal transduction, and it can lead then to massive amounts of unfolded protein response, which means less glycoprotein synthesis is going to be correctly facilitated. And on top of that, of course, you're going to get massive production of reactive oxygen, which can turn on then endogenous transcription of pro-inflammatory eicosanoids, which can act as autocoid hormones, thus stimulating the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines. And then you're off to a heavy-duty chronic inflammatory state. And because of that, you're going to induce mutations. And these mutations then, if they are unable to be controlled by, say, resonant microglia, triggering T-cell responses, you're going to ultimately then get an oncogenic event, right? So that would be one hypothesis that I would run with. And I, I, I think it's a logical one, and it's very likely that it, someone has considered it already, but I just thought I'd put it out there for you. So I'm going to stop here um, a couple minutes early because I, the next segment of this lecture is going to be um, kind of a shift, and I don't want to get into it and have to stop after only a minute or two. Into it. So I'm going to stop here. Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios on the 10th day. February 2022, saying bye for now.